from WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. On the show today, with the November elections just around the corner, we catch up with Tyron Trong, the young mayor of Bogalusa, who tells us about his historic win one year ago this month and what other Democrats can learn from his campaign. Plus, we hear about a new study from Tulane University about climate-friendly eating habits. But first, when Roe, the play, premiered at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival in 2016, Roe, the landmark Supreme Court case, was the law of the land. A lot has changed since then, especially in the Gulf South. And as Arbor Uhas reports for the Gulf States Newsroom, an updated version of the play is being staged in an unexpected place, the capital of a state with a near-total abortion ban. A quick note here, this story contains descriptions of abortion methods that may be disturbing for some listeners. When playwright Lisa Loomer first wrote Roe, she knew she would need to update it. The abortion debate in the U.S. was far from settled. Many believed it was just a matter of time before the 1973 ruling would be overturned. And they were right. Lori Parquet is the director of the latest production of Roe, put on this month by Louisiana State University's theater department in Baton Rouge. You know, there are certain lines in the play that are not true in the state of Louisiana. Even though the play was updated after Roe fell last year, Parquet says it doesn't feel totally up to date in a state where it's almost impossible to get an abortion. She even sent a letter to the play's author, pointing out issues with the script. Still, the play's opening hits home. Good evening. My name is Sarah Weddington, and I was the lawyer who argued Roe versus Wade. And tonight, I deliver its obituary. The play's preview last week was sold out. Its 200 seats were filled mostly with college undergrads, including some who were encouraged to attend as part of an intro to theater class. Anyone here remember what it was like before Roe? That's all right. You weren't alive yet. Understandable. For students, the play is both historical and contemporary. They're living in a world without Roe for the first time. And it shows. Early in the show, Weddington talks about how before abortion was legal, some hospitals had entire wards dedicated to botched procedures and at-home attempts. Some women do it themselves. They take Lysol or turpentine. They use a telephone wire. From the front row, a trio of young men wearing LSU sports gear drop their jaws in horror. A broken Coke bottle. A vacuum cleaner. These women shouldn't have to do this. It has to change. The play is meant to show the many sides of the issue, not just the pro-life and pro-choice binary. The idea is to bridge the divide by focusing on the people behind the case and their own messy views on abortion. Linda Coffey for the plaintiff. The truth is, it's about choice. Robert Flowers, representing the great state of Texas. It's about murder, plain and simple. Flip Benham, head of Operation Rescue. The truth is, it's not your body, so it's not your choice. Cast members say putting a show on about abortion at LSU feels daring. Baton Rouge isn't a blatantly liberal city like New Orleans. Instead, in the state's capital, people who identify as pro-life are likely the majority. Parquet, the director, says the role of theater is to help people understand the present. And sometimes that means going into 
very charged territory. She says her goal is to get the audience to lean in rather than away, to leave curious and more open-minded about abortion views that differ from their own. I hope everyone felt heard. Kate Zenor graduated from LSU's theater school in 2019. She plays Linda Coffey, Weddington's co-counsel, and a number of other characters on both sides of the issue. Her family was planning on seeing the show over the weekend, including her 92-year-old grandfather. They're all pro-life. My mom was asking me, like, well, is the show pro-choice or pro-life? And I kind of told her, I'm like, a lot of people who are pro-life think the show is too pro-choice, and a lot of people who are pro-choice kind of think the show is a bit too pro-life. So I'm like, we're kind of just aiming to make everyone mad a little bit. (laughs) Zenor, who is pro-choice, says she didn't form her own opinion on abortion until she went to college. She hopes the show speaks directly to LSU students. It might be the first time they've ever really been confronted with the other side of the issue. So I'm really hoping it just got them thinking about what, you know, what their opinions are, what their thoughts are versus maybe what they've been told to think. While LSU's share of conservative students is a lot higher than the national average, a 2021 poll suggests a slight majority identify as liberal. After the show, students were willing to share their thoughts on the play and some on abortion more generally. What did you what did you think of it? Did it line up with what you were expecting? Um, I was not expecting this, but in a good way. I asked that a liberal or a conservative made it. I don't think my opinions change, but I won't say my opinions. <laughs> At first I felt like like a woman should have a kid, but now like I just feel like it should be open to whatever they feel. And like everybody has their own side. But you don't know everybody's story, so. Abortion is a largely settled issue among elected officials in Louisiana. Many politicians in the state are pro-life, including Democrats. Roe is dead here. But Roe, the play, lives on. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Aubrey Uhas in Baton Rouge. The Gulf States Newsroom is a partnership among public radio stations in Louisiana, Alabama, and Mississippi. Rowe's final performance in Baton Rouge was on Sunday. When Governor-elect Jeff Landry won the race outright in October, many Democrats were left wondering if it's just too hard for a candidate on the left to win in a state that's increasingly red. While any doubters can be pointed towards Tyron Trong. The mayor of Bogalusa won the election just about a year ago today, and at the age of 23, he became the youngest mayor and first black mayor in the city's history. Tyron Trong joins us now to discuss his first year in office and his thoughts on the state of the Democratic Party in Louisiana. Tyron, we, we see so many young people these days. They leave their small towns for a college in a big city, and then they never come back. You went to Washington University in St. Louis So what made you come back home and start working here? You know, I I just got tired of seeing the headlines about my city. Um, It's a a city of about 10,000. It's a city full of resilient people. Bogalusa used to have about 30,000 residents in its prime, and I just wanted to do my part to help push us back toward that, toward that mark of stability, of, um, you know, of just a general sense of our city is back on the rise. And I think that's what we're starting to see um, with my first year in office. Well, what exactly gave you the the nerve (laughs) to run for mayor at just 23 years old and not only to run for mayor, but to run as a Democrat trying to unseat an incumbent in a very red part of the state? Why did you think that in an area where you're so different from many other of the constituents that you might resonate with them? 
Well, I think um, in today's time, people just want somebody who's authentic to represent them, somebody who who's a fighter, whether they agree with you on every issue or not, they can at least respect the fact that you do fight for what you believe in. Um, and, you know, that's what I brought to the table during my election. You know, I, I preside in an area where President Trump won with 70 percent of the vote, but we were able to get our message out. You know, I knocked every door in the city. Um, some of them twice. We just wanted to let people know that, hey, a better government is possible. And I think that transcends party lines, that transcends race, gender, because all of us want to see a government for the people. So that was our game plan. That's what we stuck to. And that's how we ended up in this seat. Yeah. And of course, you did win uh, just about a year ago today. And in that time, I know one thing that you've worked on has been lowering crime rates among youth. Can you tell us about that initiative? Yes, yeah, so it has been an ongoing task, but I'm happy to report that crime, violent crime in our city is down. Um, we have worked with the state legislature to get crime cameras um, that came through the governor. So I appreciate his effort in that. Last night, I attended the graduation for our largest patrol class in, our, in at least 20 years. I've redirected our our police department to engage in community policing. So on any given day, you can see officers walking the streets, talking to residents. And we've seen um, a higher solvent, a higher solving rate with our crimes. Um, we are solving the murders. We're getting to the bottom of it. We just installed a school resource officer at our high school. Um, this summer, I employed over 60 teenagers to, to keep them out of the streets and cleaning up our city. So it was a win-win for taxpayers. Um, during that time, we had zero shootings when historically summertime is our deadliest um, time of year here in Bogalusa. So we're starting to see um, the light at the end of the tunnel. We still have a ton of work to do, but we're pressing toward that mark. And what have been some of the other big accomplishments during your, your term so far? Yes. Yeah, so I've also been focused really heavily on revitalizing our neighborhood parks because we have to provide positive outlets for our, our youth. Here in Bogalusa, we don't have a skating rink or a bowling alley or a movie theater. So as much as we can pour into recreation throughout the city, um, that's what we've tried to do. We had the largest um, sports participation earlier this year with youth baseball and softball. And we had over 26 teams. Um, that's unheard of in a town of our size. So we're just trying to engage the youth. I've started a mayor's youth council. Um, whatever we can do at City Hall to positively impact these teenagers and keep them on the right track, that's what we're trying to do. We're speaking with Tyron Trong, the mayor of Bogalosa, who at 23 became the youngest and first black mayor in the city's history. Let's shift gears to this election cycle. Uh, while a lot of Louisianans were expecting Jeff Landry to become the next governor, I don't think a lot of people were expecting him to win the election outright in October w without a runoff. Where do you think the Democratic Party went wrong in the campaign that they, they didn't even put up a fighting chance in November? You know, that that's a complicated question, but I think it all boils down to we didn't get our message out. We didn't get it out. I think Dr. Wilson had a very positive message, a message that could have resonated. But we had, you know, infighting in the party. Um, we had a lot of fundraising issues. We just have to do a better job of coalescing around one set message as a party. I think that's something that Republicans do really well, whether they agree or they disagree. They all fall in lockstep and they told the party line. And I think that's what we have to do as Democrats. I think over in our party, we're seeing apathy um, for a, a, a litany of reasons, but 
like I was telling a community group the other night, as Democrats, sometimes we suffer from, you know, the weather has to be just right. We have to believe in our candidate. Um, all the stars have to align for us to get out and vote, as we've seen lower turnout across the state um, in the Black community. But I also think that it's it's incumbent upon the party to put a unified message out and get people to buy in. That's what campaigns are about. And I just think we failed at that. Well, you've proven that a Democrat can win in a red district. We still have three executive offices left to fill, Secretary of State, Treasurer, and Attorney General. In the week they have left, what is your advice to the Democratic candidates on how to win? Um, we just had a nice meet and greet over in Washington Parish with the three candidates running statewide. And like I told them, you know, just try to get your message out in any way possible. Like I said, I door knocked, we sent mailers, um, we put out signs, we we connected with community groups because it's only so much that a campaign can do by itself. You need backers, you need community organizations that can help you carry your message. And I think that's what we should be focusing on in the final week. And should any of these candidates win, they'll be working in a state house dominated by Republicans. I imagine you have quite a bit of experience working across the aisle. So what's your advice on bipartisanship and finding common ground? I just think all elected officials can find one or two issues that they agree on. It might not be an exact agreement, but where they align. And that's what I have done since my time in the seat. You know, both my state rep and my state senator, um, they're both Republicans, but I have a great working relationship with them. You know, it's all about what initiative are you passionate about and see can can you work with that like the crime the crime issue in my city my state senator got us the appropriation for those crime cameras and it's because she believes in our city being safer and so do i so that was one of the the areas that we aligned on and that's that's where that's what we have to do as democrats stand your ground and keep your conviction on those issues that you can't compromise on but find as much common ground as possible so that we can deliver for our constituents and before you go, you've got just over three years left in your term. What are some of your big ideas that you'd like to implement in that time? Yes. Yeah, so we're basically, um, we're at a crossroads here in Bogalusa. We have a new highway coming that's going to connect us to Interstate 10. Um, that's going to cut down our commute from about an hour and 15 minutes to New Orleans to about 45, 50 minutes. So that's major. I want to try to attract more industry to my city. Um, we're working on a, a multi-million dollar community center that we're getting appropriations from through capital outlay at the state. So just wrapping up those big ticket items, if I can get a warehouse of some sort with 100, 200 jobs, I believe that that would really help lift up, lift all boats here in the city, as well as continuing down the path of providing recreational opportunities for our kids so that we can keep cutting this crime rate, because that's what Bogalusa has been known for in the past, crime and, and our legacy with racism. Um, so I think we're starting to push forward on the ladder, but we still have a lot more work to do when it comes to crime. So that's that's the big picture items. <laughs> Tyron Trong is the mayor of Bogalusa. Mr. Mayor, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. 
According to a new study co-authored by a Tulane University researcher and published in the journal Nature Food, making simple substitutions in your diet, like switching from beef to chicken or drinking plant-based milk instead of cow's milk, could significantly reduce the average American's carbon footprint and make them healthier. The findings highlight the potential impact of climate-friendly eating habits. With more on that study, Professor and Director of Nutrition at Tulane University School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine, Diego Rose, joins me now. Diego, good to have you on. Karen, thanks for inviting me. Hey, let's start with the relationship between food and carbon emissions. Make that connection for us. How does what we eat contribute to the Earth's carbon footprint, and how big is that footprint? Yeah, it's a really good question, Karen. And most people don't think about their footprint when uh, when we're talking about food, right? They typically think about the energy sector or transportation. But, you know, when you produce food at, at every stage of the, of the food process, um, there's energy used and there's greenhouse gases that are emitted. In fact, if you sum it all together, human food systems account for a third of all greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and so it's a, it's a big deal. And um, I, and so that's that's why we're we're interested in this topic. All right. Well, tell us about the study. How many people involved? How was it conducted? Uh, well, there are over fifty six hundred people in the sample that we did. We we have secondary data from the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, and what we did was we we got the diets of these people and we matched them up. We hooked them up with environmental impact data to get a sense for what each food that they ate, what impact it had or would have. And then we, we, from that, calculated a carbon footprint for each person. So for every, everybody, these 5,600 individuals, we have carbon footprints of their diet. And then we chose specific items to substitute out small changes that we thought would make a difference in their environmental impact, or particularly around greenhouse gas emissions. What are the commonly eaten foods that have the, the highest carbon footprint? So we looked at four broad food groups, protein, mixed dishes, milk and dairy, and beverages. And we we chose the high impact ones in each of those. Within protein, it was beef. It was a much higher impact than chicken or pork or other foods. And same thing within mixed dishes. Um, in milk, milk was a higher impact than soy, soy milk. And beverages, juices are, are higher impact than the, the individual fruit. Um, and so why is that? Why would beef have a higher impact than chicken, for example? Well, uh, you know, cows emit methane in their normal digestion, and that methane is a high-impact greenhouse gas emission. We're speaking, yes. we're speaking with Diego Rose. He's a professor and, and uh, director of nutrition at Tulane University School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine, talking about a new study that found simple diet swaps can cut carbon emissions and actually improve our health. You know, there were some health benefits that you guys uh, discovered as you looked at the data from this study. And this is just making small, climate-friendly eating changes and swaps and choices. What health benefits did you discover? Yeah, so we looked at their overall diet, and we did this with a, a it's a tool called the Healthy Eating Index. It was created by USDA. It's supposed to uh, provide a metric for how closely diets align with the dietary guidelines for Americans. And what we found was that by making these swaps, people's diets improved by anywhere from four to ten percent on this index. So that that's that's pretty good. What's what's happening specifically within that? 
it looks like saturated fats are going down, fiber is going up, you know, seafood and plant foods are going up. So there's a, um, there's a number of changes that make up that healthy eating index that are, are being improved with these swaps. The study expanded on past research. You included in this uh, dietary data from children. What was the significance of including children? Well, I think in our first study, we just looked at adults, and, and the idea was, well, that's just part of the population. Why don't we look at everybody in this one? Our idea with including children was that people's food habits form early in life. And so we wanted to see if this kind of thing was relevant for children as well, since, since once they form habits, it's very hard to change them. And what we, what we saw was that our basic findings were, were similar across all the different age groups. I mean, there's a little more impact with adults, but there's still significant impacts with kids as well. Did you get any indication um, about whether people find making these dietary changes easy or difficult? And, and do you think these are changes that they'd maintain? We were simulating these changes, so we didn't, we didn't try them out on real people. But the idea with them was to make them as easy as possible. And in fact, when we looked, when we looked at somebody's diets, we only changed one food on that diet. So you could imagine everything that you eat in a day, and if one of the things you ate was a beef burrito, then we just swapped out the beef for the chicken. Um, or um, if you know, on a different day, everything uh, of everything you ate, maybe what we changed uh, was instead of having apple juice, uh, we we had you eat an apple instead of apple juice. That was the change that was in beverage. Or in the milks group, maybe it would be uh, swapping out. Uh, milk for uh, soy milk, for example. Um, and these are, so these are just single item changes and everything else stays the same. So it's not like you have to like adopt this complicated diet. You don't have to become a vegetarian. You don't have to become a vegan. It's just changing one thing. So we think that it will be relatively easy for people to try this and continue on with it. And the numbers, the impact again, the, the small changes that you, you mentioned, what, what was the impact? On the other side, you started with our, our current carbon imprint uh, because of what we eat is about a third. So making these small changes, what kind of impact could that have? Yeah, so what we found overall across all four groups and all the people that consumed those, that for people's individual carbon footprints, it would lower on average by 45%. It's almost in half for the individuals themselves. And even um, expanding it out to the people that didn't make the substitutions, in other words, the whole population, uh, it would drop by over 35%. So there's big changes in impact that could happen by these small changes in, in diets. So what do you think the, the, the study tells us about the possibilities in our future? I think there's a lot of hope for the, uh, when, when we see results like this, because it says that um, we don't have to completely change our diets to make a difference, both in terms of the environment and, and in terms of our own health. And that there's simple, small changes that we can do uh, that are easy to do that we can do, and, and, and they can have an impact on both environment and health. Diego Rose, professor and director of nutrition at Tulane University School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine. Diego, thank you for your time today. Thank you, Karen. Thank you. 
from WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Karen Henderson. Thanks to our guests, Mayor of Bogalusa, Tyron Trong, and Professor and Director of Nutrition at Tulane University School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine, Diego Rose. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber. Our assistant producer is Aubrey Procell. Our engineer is Garrett Pittman. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from the Historic New Orleans Collection.